I recognize that this service is a little bit of a different day given that we've had some challenges with our audio this morning. But I, I sometimes come to the place where I sense there's some resistance occurring. I sense there's some resistance against what God hopes to accomplish. You've heard me say a number of times that the miracle is always in the timing of God's provision, right? That it happens when it's needed. Well, sometimes resistance is in the timing too. There are forces that prevail, seek to prevail against the work of God. My prayer is that those forces not distract you or I or anyone else within the sound of my voice this morning from hearing and following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, whatever that may be in this service, on this day, in this season of ministry here at Paznaz. For there are many temptations for distraction. Every once in a while, it might be the sound. But we give thanks to God that we are here, we are together, we are in God's house, either digitally or in person, and God intends to do something in us. Last week, Pastor Brad gave us a wonderful introduction to the parables. He explained a number of dimensions of the parables to us and helped us understand why they matter in our understanding of the gospel, why they matter in our understanding of what Jesus was attempting to communicate. And I'll not revisit all of that, but this morning, I want to remind you that last week, Pastor Brad spoke to us about the first two of the three lost parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and today we come to the third parable in chapter 15 of Luke that Jesus gave about the lost son. But we face a challenge this morning. The lost son or the parable of the prodigal son or whatever you may want to call it, the waiting father. One commentator even suggested we could call it the absent mother. There's no woman mentioned in this parable. But part of our challenge is that while it is probably the most popular of all of Jesus' parables, it is probably the one that has been preached more times than any other parable. Our challenge this morning might be familiarity. That we know this story so well, we think we have understood all of it that there is to understand. That we have learned all there is to learn from it and that there might not be any new teaching left. But could I say to us this morning that the work of God's spirit, thanks be to God, is not limited to our understanding is not limited to what we've learned in the past, is not limited to what we may believe we know. And in fact, it may be true this morning that the Holy Spirit might lead you to unknow something you thought you knew about this parable. And so it is we come on this day having heard the reading of the text this morning. And it is easy for many of us to identify with some of the dynamics of this parable. And again, it becomes a familiar story for some of us, or some of us have watched and waited 
for a loved one, a child. And some of us have had the joy of that return and some of us are still waiting. But there is truth for us this morning and hope for us this morning. There is the presence of God in a new way for us this morning. And so while it may be familiar to us, I want to invite you to make a commitment on this day that you will seek to be open to something new from this parable. Amen? How many of you will commit to that with me this morning? Okay, some of you, not sure. So this morning as we remember and recall the reading of the text, I invite you to take your Bibles either digitally or from the pew rack in front of you or the one you brought with you and open it to, John, to Luke chapter 15 and follow along. Follow the story. And this morning we have the opportunity to embrace the challenge of looking and thinking about this wonderful parable through three different lenses. The lens of context. What was going on around the teaching that Jesus was giving? The second one is the lens of the listeners. Who's listening and what did they hear? And the lens of the three main characters in the parable. When we think about the context, we must remember, as Pastor Brad mentioned to us last week, this is a parable, it didn't really happen. It is fiction, but it is fiction with a powerful gospel message. And this parable is being told by Jesus to give insight into Jesus' purposes and God's priorities. It is a conduit to understanding the gospel as Jesus wishes it to be represented. Sometimes Jesus wishes the gospel to be represented differently than we represent it. Another part of the lens of context is that Jesus is telling a very Jewish story to Jewish listeners. All of the listeners would have understood that there was a father who had two sons and this father had a, an estate, large or small, it doesn't matter. All of them would have understood that the estate would be divided among the sons, not split equally necessarily, but traditionally the younger son received a third of the estate and the older son two thirds. It's just the way life was. All of the listeners know that in Jewish tradition and practice, it would have been unusual for the son to sell his inheritance before his father's passing. All of the listeners, as Jewish as they were, would have been appalled to hear that the son was living as a Gentile. They would have been disturbed by the son's wasteful habits. They would have found it abhorrent that he was living with and feeding pigs and eating the pods fed to the pigs. What is not clear to us, as Jesus tells this parable to the tax collectors and sinners, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
and to the disciples. What is not clear is how they responded to the twist of the story. To the twist of the story when the father receives the son with compassion after all of the son's abusive behavior. And remember, as the passage was read to us, the son came and repented and confessed before the father. And the father did not even say, you're forgiven, it doesn't matter. The father just said, you're home. We want to celebrate, you're home. It is the one thing that this parable shares with the previous two parables is that when the work of God is complete, there is celebration to be had. We also want to listen to this parable through the lens of the listeners. Luke 15, verse 1 says that the tax collectors and the sinners were present. How do we feel about that? Intellectually, we feel good about that. Emotionally, sometimes not so well. And as we'll see a little bit later in the parable, you see, when the tax collectors and the sinners are present, they display some of the faithful. And there's muttering that goes on. And so the second group of people that are present is a new group of people in the religion tradition. They're now called mutterers. Mutterers. Here they're called Pharisees and teachers of the law because verse 2 says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering. This man spends time with tax collectors and sinners. I'm not sure why the division of, la of labor there, tax collectors and sinners. But that's where Jesus was. And it made them uncomfortable. And given the attitude of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, we might be prompted to ask, who are the sinners in the room? Are the mutterers sinning in their muttering? But we have to recognize that in Jewish tradition, and even from statements in the Old Testament, their determination to keep the law as written in the Old Testament and to adhere to Jewish practice was to keep themselves separated from sinners. In the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to be participating with sinners because that's the way you kept yourself pure. And I've been hanging out in the church since I was one week old. That's a lot of weeks. <laughs> and I have heard that kind of mistaken theology in the church. We have taught it to our children. Watch who you hang out with. 
How about helping them grow in the faith strong enough we don't have to be concerned who they're hanging out with? And we have legions of stories about when kids were hanging out with the wrong kids and the, you know, was it the child's problem or was it ours? Such thinking makes us uncomfortable. William Barclay says, a holy man always has an unholy friend. Can I just be real frank with you? I actually like hanging out with people who are not part of y'all. And some of you do that well in your professions and your vocations. And I say, thanks be to God. But if we're threatened by the presence of sinners, maybe there's something we need to care for in our own heart, in our own lives, in our own practices, rather than making it about them. Because I would just posit to us, where was Jesus? Jesus wasn't concerned about being unpure by hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus wasn't afraid of that. Jesus was secure in his understanding of what his call, what his purpose was, and what his path was to be. And so he was being criticized. He was being muttered against by folks who wanted clear lines between the righteous and the unrighteous. But in the midst of all of their commitment to learning, studying the Old Testament, and their determination to keep the law, as well as adhering to Jewish ritual and practice, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law forgot a primary theme of the Old Testament, forgot a primary theme of Israel's history, that God loves the wayward. God loves the wayward. And it's just as true in the New Testament. It's the driving purpose behind this series in the year 2022 that God relentlessly pursues us in love, seeking to redeem us, and in doing that, remind us that God loves the wayward. Oh, I wish we could catch that passion. Oh, I wish we could catch that in a way that would say, we love the wayward and we're okay. Come, be with me. Let me be with you. Let us walk together. Let us live like together, life together. And so it is that I wonder if it's possible that the muttering of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had developed spiritual cataracts, making it difficult for them to see clearly the teaching of Jesus in this parable. The third group of listeners are the disciples. They are the reporters. Luke reports this parable. He reports the context of the parable. He reports who listened to the parable and he reports the details and the characters of the parable. 
But I'm gonna suggest to us this morning that the disciples, while being reporters and listeners, didn't understand what Jesus was saying. There are other places in the gospel where it says Jesus took them away and explained to them everything he'd been teaching. And it's clear they fully didn't get it at all times. Remember when they tried to keep the children away? Don't don't let the little children bother Jesus. He's busy, and Jesus said what? Suffer the little children. Let them come. They tried to keep the crowds away. Remember the story of the woman who said, all I need to do is just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be well. She somehow made her way through the crowd and surreptitiously reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. There are people among us who just want to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And sometimes I fear we have built structures and systems that keep people away. Belief structures, practices. Oh, may the God of heaven secure us in our faith so deeply we're not threatened by the presence of someone who's not up to our standards. Are we okay? It's really quiet in here. I'm going to suggest this morning that the disciples, as they are reporting, as they are seeing, as they are hearing Jesus give expression of the gospel, are being set up. They're being set up. I'm going to guess Peter was in the room. I think Peter was being set up for the day when he's on the rooftop. And God starts talking about the Gentiles and shows him unclean food. And God says to Peter, eat. And Peter says, God, I would never eat anything unclean. And God says, what I declared clean is clean. And there's a knock on the door and there's a Gentile at the door. You see, parables like this one set the disciples up for the gospel they will become responsible for on the day of Pentecost and thereafter. It is preparation for them. Jesus is teaching them as listeners even while he's teaching the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the message is a personal one for all of the listeners present. Let me ask you a question, and I'm gonna ask it again at the end. Of the three groups of listeners, where are you located? Disciple? Scratching your head? Not sure I fully understand yet? Pharisee and teacher of the law? 
striving hard to maintain the standards of righteousness as you understand it, lean into muttering every once in a while, tax collector and sinner. I love the tax collector and sinner category because they are drawn to the teaching of Jesus because they've never heard anyone teach like this before. And they're hearing good news. They're hearing compassion. They're hearing hope. They haven't heard compassion and hope from the other folks in the room, but they're hearing it from Jesus. There's a beautiful painting. It hangs in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, painted by Rembrandt, called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and you can see it on the screen behind me. Millions of people have pondered the story of the return of the prodigal from Rembrandt's painting. Some have suggested that this is Rembrandt's own story It was painted in the late 1660s, not 1960s, 1660s, before most of y'all were born. Most likely about two years before Rembrandt's death in 1669. And I have to tell you, the image on the screen doesn't do the painting justice. I wish I could give each of you a beautiful copy of it today. But notice Rembrandt's use of light and how Rembrandt positioned the light so that it focuses on the three primary characters of the story. The father, son, and the elder brother to the right. And in the background, in the shadows, there are two other men and a woman. And if you could get really up close, you would see some etchings on the wall. If you got close, you could see that the scrawny legs of the sun show through the thin garment that he has on. That his shoes are worn and one of them has fallen off because of disrepair. And we can almost see and sense the pressure of which the repentant son leans into the embrace of the father. And if you look at the way the hands are positioned, it's as if the father is drawing the son into himself. The way the fingers are splayed across the son's back. And I would imagine that the father's tunic is wet from the tears of the son as he weeps his confession And the well-attired father with the rich red robe over his shoulders and the bearing of the father and the presence of the father saying, I have authority and power and I have wealth, but nothing matters right now except you are here. And yet the elder son stands by with his arms crossed, distant, Emotionally disconnected, disinterested except for his own self-interest.
And you can almost hear, based on the reading of the text this morning, what's going through the son's mind. You can see it on his face in this painting. The posture of the younger son suggests humility and recognition of the life that he had lost. His bearing, his body reflects the harsh living conditions he experienced before coming to his senses and returning home. What is evident in this painting is the son's awareness that the son had made a choice and followed his own path, followed his own way, believed he knew best, disregarded the wisdom of their culture and tradition, disregarded the wisdom of the father, and said, I'm going to do it my way, I've done it my way, and boy, have I made a mess of it. But to the son's credit, the son comes to his senses and said, I would be better off as a servant in my father's house for the servants have clothes to wear and food to eat. I'm gonna go back and ask just to be a place, to be given a place in my father's house to be a servant. Even being a servant in my father's house is better than feeding pigs and eating pods. But the father's posture in the painting suggests the father and son are intertwined with grace and mercy. And while the younger son chose a path of life that didn't turn out the way he thought it would, he doesn't let his pride get the best of him. You know, some of us, when we were living our lives before we came to Jesus can remember those moments of pride where we knew we needed to return and yet we didn't because we were afraid to admit we'd made poor choices and we let our pride get in the way. And you finally, we finally came to our senses, right? Thanks be to God. Don't let our pride get in the way. Don't let your pride get in the way. There is hope to be found in the presence and the reception of Jesus. The parable says to us, come home. The parable says to us, we can come home. It's the place we belong. The father gave his younger son his inheritance and let him have his way with it. He recognized the error of his son's determination to live his own light and yet watches and waits for his younger son in full awareness that he may never return. As he said to the older son, your brother who is dead is alive again. I cannot even imagine what this father was experiencing while his younger son was away. Some of you know that experience. Some of you wait 
and some of you have welcomed a loved one back. The father recognizes in his waiting that the son may never return. But when that day does come and his son does return, what does he do? He rejoices and celebrates. He doesn't dwell on the details. There's no I told you so. There's no resistance to the return. There is joyful welcome. Given the elder brother's callous response to his brother's return, I've been asking myself the question this week, which son was lost? Which son is lost in this story? Part of the challenge of this parable is there's no resolution at the end of the parable, is there, with the elder son? But we do note that the father goes out to both of them. The father has compassion for both of them. And the father is waiting for a second son now to return. And it seems to me that the elder son has become part of the mutterers. Full of righteous indignation, but without soul and compassion, grace and mercy. But there is a, there is a question that comes to my mind in this response of the elder son. Because he does have a point. After all, he has been faithful, he has been diligent, he has been responsible, he has been disciplined. He's done everything asked of him. And he wonders, how come you never celebrated my faithfulness? It's a fair question, quite frankly. It actually is a question of whether or not the father has treated the older son justly. But you can't answer that question out of context. It has to be answered in context. You see, sometimes in communities of faith, we set up competitive systems. Well, I have done and fill in the blank or fill the page. And I deserve to be treated this way because I'm afraid if I don't say something, I'll be forgotten. Because there's some new folks arriving. I pastored in a church when I was much younger and a longtime member had a certain seat. A guest came on a Sunday morning, sat in that certain seat. Now this is a visitor, right? How would a visitor know? 
the woman was found in the foyer of the church. And as I spoke to her, she said, I think I'm going to leave and go to another church. Why? Somebody sat in my seat. She had joined the mutterers. And it's, it's an egregious example, right? She didn't leave. But it's a question for us to wrestle with because it's not an either or answer in the kingdom of God because the parables, all three of the parables say to us, when the lost returns, there is celebration in heaven that doesn't diminish those who are already part of the kingdom. So we have a choice. We can either join the celebration or we can mutter our way through. And I have to tell you, I'd much rather be part of the party than to be a mutterer. We okay? Well, we've got to go on. This is taking too long. Let me ask you this question. Where do you locate yourself in the parable this morning? Where do you locate yourself as one of the listeners? Where do you locate yourself as one of the characters? Truth be told, I am at times all of them. I am. I want to aspire to be like the Father every time. I do. And there are times when I am gracious and compassionate and merciful. But there are times when I mutter. There are times when I react like the elder son. Go, well, what about my faithfulness? What about my position? What about my fill in my blank? Don't fill in my blank. Fill in your own blank. But when I read this parable, I have to ask, where where today am I located in this parable? And it's a great question for us to take with us to say, on any given day, where am I locating myself in the gospel teaching of Jesus about the lost son? And let the Holy Spirit come to you and speak to you and say, you are gracious and merciful and compassion, or you are muttering. Or today, you need to be restored because you've fallen into the elder son syndrome but there's good news it's double good news this morning would you hear this no matter where you are no matter where you've been no matter where you're going no matter what you've been doing no matter how long you've been away God wants you home and God will welcome you as the father in the parable did without question with celebration and joy, and we would join in that celebration. That's good news. 
The second good news is, like the younger son, we are heirs of the loving father's compassion. Like the older son, we have inherited the father's estate. And we are the father's successors. And we are to be successors of love and mercy and compassion. Because that's our estate that's been entrusted to us. Amen? And so I say to you and to me this morning, wherever you're located today, let the Holy Spirit enlighten us. And let us be relocated to the location of the Father who gives grace and mercy and compassion. Amen.